Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm Sophia Apostle, and I'm here with Miriam Chiasson. Hi, Miriam. Welcome. Hi, Sophia. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. So, Miriam, I heard about you. So this is like, I heard about you through my friend Sabrina, who took one of your trainings at her work. So she works for the federal government in Canada, and she is actually in charge of um, putting together a mentorship program. And as she, and, and it's been very interesting. She and I have both gone deep into kind of anti-oppression work over the last like three to four years, both of us really encouraged by our workplaces to do so. And so for her at the federal level, it's really shifted the way that she's created this year's iteration of the mentorship program. They've got like indigenous specific groups. They're doing a lot of work with the different, oh, I forget the term. There's a government term. Is it like affiliate groups? Maybe protected groups. Yeah. Like, like, Yes, but equity groups, equity groups, I think is the term. Yeah, I always forget the government terms for things. They always, government always has a term for things. And uh, so, so we talk all the time about anti-O work and education and, oh, I saw this thing. Did you see this? And she had just, and she does the trainings that are offered. And she had just done a training with you, texted me immediately saying, oh my God, there is finally an anti-fat bias or a weight stigma related training. And I was stunned because with all the work that I've been doing, all the training I've received, as I was saying to you before we start recording, I'm always the fat person in the room going and don't forget about fat people and sizeism and anti-bias, you know, anti-fat bias and weight discrimination and sizeism. And I'm like, I'm always that person because it's not, in my experience, it is never mentioned we talk about racism, classism, misogyny, gender discrimination, all these other aspects of marginalization. But in generally, general with my experience of DEI type trainings, anti-fatness has not been part of it. So I was stunned. I reached out to you immediately. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, can we please talk? So I'm so thrilled you said yes. I'm so excited that this is on the radar with an organization that does this training. So it's so overdue. To be fair, there are many different ways to be marginalized and it's an ongoing work, right? Inclusion is never done. There's no finish line. But considering how prevalent and how deeply rooted and how we're surrounded by weight bias all day, every day, this is definitely 
an area that we need to focus on. Yeah, oh, I'm so grateful. Okay, we're going to do a deep dive in, but let's start with who are you, Miriam? <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure thing. My name is Miriam Chesson. My pronouns are she, her. En français, elle, la, lui. I'm originally from Montreal. I have a BA in history and anthropology from Concordia University and a master's in library and information science from McGill. Yes. Uh, I worked in a public library for about five years and then uh, my career shifted uh, towards DEI. I kind of stumbled into it a little bit. It was kind of it kind of interesting. I applied to the job out of nowhere. Honestly, it was probably not my strongest cover letter ever, but hey, it was good enough. Um, and I was really impressed with the, the interview panel, the organization, all that. And I, I got very excited about the work. I've always been someone that's very interested in social justice, uh, done a lot of research, especially in my BA around these topics. So I was super excited to join in. Um, so I currently work at CCDI, the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion. Uh, among other things, I manage the certification process. So we have a, a certificate. I'm the one that uh, that manages in the back end. And I also develop a lot of content for webinars. And I've also done in the past sessions directly with employers. So they'll request a specific topic. I come in, deliver, and... Uh, there you go. Uh, so right now I mostly do, when I develop content, it's mostly for webinars uh, that are shared with the public and with our partners. Um, yeah, in my personal life, I'm married. I've been with my husband for almost 15 years now. We're sort of high school sweethearts. Quebec's a little different there. Um, I currently live in New Brunswick. Uh, Dip, the uh, suburb of Moncton, to be specific. And uh, I'm a cat mama. I've got three cats, as any good librarian should, of course. And uh, we also foster cats. We have three foster cats right now. So we volunteer with the rescue. And I also love knitting and crochet. And uh, yeah. I love it. So you have six cats right now? In my house, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do they all get along? <laughs> Reasonably well, yeah, yeah. They're all, all, they're, they're all pretty. One of our of our cats is always a little bit testy. He's uh, not super fond of the foster cats, but he's gotten over it over the years. So that's so great. Oh, I love that. Love that. Um, I don't think I've been to where you live in New Brunswick, but I spent some time in Fredericton. Yeah, which is just beautiful. I used to go to a library conference there, actually. And I would visit UNB was one of my clients when I was in library land. Um, yeah. And New Brunswick is beautiful. It's a lovely province. Yeah. Do you want to? Okay. Slide story, because why not? It's, it's, it's my podcast. It is. So I used to have a role when I was a librarian where I would basically travel. I was like in charge of Canada for um, a company that sold books and catalog records and stuff like that. So I was in sales, but my clients were libraries. And so I traveled all over Canada and New Brunswick was had the best people. So I was driving across New Brunswick heading to PEI and 
in the mid, it was like kind of middle end of New Brunswick, somewhere there where there's like nothing. It's like rock and very rural. And I would see like six houses and then it'd be like nothing for a couple of hours. So one of those moments where I saw six houses, like I really had to go to the bathroom and I didn't know what to do. There's not like there's rest stops. Like it, we're talking rural. And also there weren't a lot of trees. So it's not like I could just pull over and go behind a tree. It was very barren. And so I literally just pulled up to this person's house and I knocked on the door and I was like, it was an older woman and she's like, Hey honey, how are you? I'm like, this is so random. You don't know me, but can I use your bathroom? And she looked at me, she goes, of course, I'm just headed out to bingo. Just lock up when you're done. And she left. Oh my God. That's next level. Wow. (laughs) So New Brunswick, it will always have a soft spot in my heart for that random woman who just left me in her home. For me, it was a big change to coming from, from Montreal, pretty big city. Like my neighbors, whenever we cross paths, we say, hi, how's it going? And all that. That's not really something that I had in, 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 in Montreal. And yeah, you definitely have to plan your travel. I know there's a, a spot where there's like an hour and a half stretch to cross the province and there's. I think that's must have been where I was. It was my first time doing it. And I was like, okay, note to self. I had put a note. Yeah. This is the last gas station before this, uh, this section. We got to stop there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so smart. So smart. But yeah, it is. I really love Atlantic Canada. If anyone listening is looking for a fun place to travel, Atlantic Canada is amazing. The people are amazing. The landscape's gorgeous. The food's delicious. Like it's just a beautiful part of Canada. I digress. But I just, I love East Coast and I, you know what? And I miss travel so much right now (laughs) because of COVID. So Miriam, let's talk about fatness. What is your relationship and what's been your journey with the word fat? I guess I have to make a bit of a distinction, which is important. My mind might not be that much of a distinction. I grew up in a hundred percent francophone area, so I didn't really refer to myself as fat all that much until kind of later teens, adulthood. So I grew up with the word ghost, which means fat, feminine, singular ghost. Uh, and the small distinction is that go and ghost are words that are used to talk about other things than fatness. It means big, generally. That's the closest literal translation. So it wasn't just about fat tissue or fatness. It was also about the amount of space I occupied kind of thing, which I I don't know if that's necessarily that much of a distinction, but in my mind, it makes sense. And I also would hear that word quite a bit, kind of, hey, this is a big apple or this is a big project we're working on. You know, it's used more commonly for a lot of different things. And I got teased a whole lot as a kid because I, I was fat. And that's the words that would be used to to describe me. And it was intended as not positive, right? Um, especially in elementary school. I have a doozy of a elementary school bullying story. I can regale you with it later if you want. Um, but that was a word that was used to describe me a lot. And uh, thankfully, my, my mom worked quite a bit. Uh, I don't know why I started with thankfully, but I guess the silver lining is while she did see fatness as negative, right? I think everybody inherits a little bit of that from, from their parents. She was probably too busy to give as much attention to my body as she's, as she might have liked. Um, 
And also lucky for me, I was a very righteous child. Like I have a very, I had a very strong moral compass to the point where I definitely had to work on being a little bit more flexible over the years. But like, I was the kind of kid that was like the teachers asking for boys to move stuff around. And I, I want to move things. I'm strong. Girls are strong, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and that, and fat stigma thankfully fell in that category of, Hey, this sucks. This is not fair. Like, I'm glad that that fell in that category of my, of my moral compass. Cause I definitely had the sense of like the word fat or gross was bad, not because I'm bad and I deserve to be treated this way, but because of, there's a stigma. Right. Oh, I love that you realized that. So yeah, I'm very glad that, that I did too, honestly. Um, and then as I uh, evolved in more Anglophone areas, especially after high school, uh, that's where I probably heard the, more, the word fat a little bit more. And then I already had kind of a pretty strong moral personality formed that I was able to describe myself that way, knowing that it should be a neutral word, like it's not a bad thing. Um, and then uh, since I was very interested in social justice, also, generally, I was able to see that word as neutral pretty early on in encountering it. I knew how society intended it to be, but I, I was able to to kind of look at it from a distance and apply it to myself in a way that's like, hey, it's just a descriptor. However, the word goals is definitely something I still have to work on because there's more emotional uh, baggage, let's say, around that word and how it was used to stigmatize me and reject me as a child. Um, so yeah, I'm still trying to tame that word, I think. And it's probably going to be, it's the type of word that's lifelong, right? You always have to deal with some of those things. It's never quite over. Um, but I'm, I'm able to describe myself using that word for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's ongoing work. Yeah. And when you moved into the DEI space and I imagine kind of dove into research and, you know, not only with, you know, weight stigma, but all types of other stigmas and, you know, racisms and all that, all the other pieces of DEI work, did that have an impact on your understanding of anti-fatness? Did that deepen it in any way or change it? Like, I'm just curious of the impact there. My personal uh journey let's say with anti-fatness definitely coincided with how with with when i started working in in di because i hung out in a lot more places uh got information from a lot of different for sources followed different uh, social media accounts things of that nature and thanks to intersectionality and fatness being a very widespread stigma i definitely fell into some spaces where there was advocacy for uh, fat liberation and uh, started consuming more media that uh, was definitely healthier for me and was uh, was able to give me a more nuanced understanding of how the world sees fatness and how that relates to me also. In DEI work, some of my areas of expertise, I'll use that loosely towards the beginning was uh, a lot around gender and fatness played into that too because fat women and fat men are received kind of differently 
I think that's fair to say. There's there's a, some intersecting <laughs> elements there. So there were sometimes discussions around appearance for women and men and things like that, where the topic of fatness would kind of peek in to other uh, topics, if that makes sense. I worked a lot around disability. So I'm a person with an invisible disability. Um, and, and that was, all, again, some topics that were brought in around capacities and uh, people having different needs based on the characteristics of their bodies and how society views characteristics of bodies um, and how that interaction is really what creates disability and things like that. So the, the topic would pop around, you know, other, other topics. Uh, and pretty early on, actually, I wanted to do something very specific around that stigma. Uh, I, I, I was getting all this information and I, I got very kind of gung ho. Oh yeah, I want to do this topic. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. There's a lot to be done there. I want, I, you know, I raised my hand there too. You know, I, I, I can do that. Um, so pretty early on in my DI career, I asked someone in a, in a higher position, Hey, can I prepare a brand new session on this? And she's like, yes, do it. She was she totally on board. Everybody was excited about it. Uh, she asked me to do it. I think she gave me a due date like two months later, you know, which in theory wouldn't have been too bad, except when I started to actually do the research and put it together, it turned out to be some very emotionally demanding work. DEI generally is emotionally demanding, and I definitely had some insights into that. But that was the topic where I really got it where I became much more aware and compassionate around the emotional labor that uh, Black DEI uh, facilitators might do or uh, queer DEI facilitators might do other intersections that I, I, I don't have the, the personal experience and, and, and how talking about something that you experience every day and doing some of the work to unravel it is extremely demanding emotionally. And I made the mistake of scrolling too far down sometimes on the resources and ended up in the comment section, right? You don't, you don't wanna, you don't wanna read the comments. And, and so I, I kind of look at the clock, start working on this. And I'm like, okay, oh my God, I've, I've worked so much. It must be like five hours later or something. It's like, no, it's been 45 minutes. And it's kind of like, oh, okay. Emotional labor time is different than regular time. It's not. Well, and before I want you to continue, but I also want to pause for a sec and because I totally skipped over the question that I said, I was like, we must not skip over the question of what is DEI? Let's explain DEI for people. No, no, that was me. That was totally me. <laughs> okay, going back. So first step, what is DEI? Uh, DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You might have heard different versions of the acronym. Sometimes it'll be D and I, diversity and inclusion. Some people use EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion. Depends on what you kind of want to emphasize. Uh, I've also some heard folks, Jedi, which I think is Jedi, really interesting. Yes, <laughs> there are uh, conflicting opinions on Jedi. The J there would stand for justice. The The idea with justice, though, is that you, you might have as an ideal that you want to bring justice, but is it really attainable? So, just, Yes, we want it to be attainable, but you don't want to kind of over promise if that makes sense like we there's a lot of work inside an organization that needs to be done to bring justice so to speak 
if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I hadn't heard that before. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there's also IDEA, I-D-E-A. The A there stands often for accessibility. Sometimes it'll stand for anti-racism too. Uh, accessibility is more focused around uh, providing access to this information and generally to workplaces for folks with uh, different needs, including disabilities. Um, so my organization actually uses DEI. We haven't added the A yet because we don't want to present ourselves as having that expertise when we feel we still have something to do on it. Yeah, uh, some acronyms will also add a B. I've heard of DEIB. B stands for belonging which would be kind of the next step after inclusion. When you built an inclusive workplace, you're hoping that your staff feel a sense of belonging uh, to the workplace. Yeah, so those are the ones that I've heard. Uh, so essentially, DEI um, is a relatively young field. Uh, it used to be just called diversity. That's kind of where it started probably a few decades ago. And then the acronym has been building over time, so to speak. Um, and it's really focused around uh, increasing awareness around differences in the workplace, creating environments where people can bring their authentic selves to work uh, and, and not be expected to change who they are and be able to, to contribute to the workplace and be respected and treated with dignity, right? Uh, DI sometimes can, for a, a big uh, organization, you might have a separate DI department. For others, it's one or two specialists in the HR department. Sometimes they're in the learning department. Like it, it depends a little bit on the organization. And then there are a few firms that do just DEI, right? And then they go into workplaces uh, to provide that service, which is essentially what my, my employer does. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And when you go into organizations, are you, what are you offering? Like, is it driven by the organization? Do you have set things that you recommend? Like, what what do you actually do when you go to work with someone? Definitely the organization will uh, come in with an ask, right? Hey, we're looking to do this. And oftentimes it stems from a place, it can be from a place of checking the box. And then uh, depending on, what services are discussed to be provided and whatnot. Um, often we'll try to be proactive and say, hey, it looks like you might benefit from reviewing your policies or from offering this specific kind of training or from doing focus groups to get more information about what your your staff is experiencing. So, so there's a lot of different things that a DI specialist can do coming into a workplace. Um, uh, but yeah, there, there there does have to be some meeting of the minds. Unfortunately, you can bring in a DEI specialist, but if you just want to check a box, then you, you might not actually achieve what you're actually looking for, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because my next question was like, what's the goal of DEI work typically? And, and that's a great question because as I was trying to explain, there's really no finish line, right? So we're definitely looking for progress, recognizing that we might not reach perfections. There are so many different ways to be marginalized. There are 8 billion people on this planet. Like we're not gonna be able to create a system that includes absolutely everybody at all times. Um, 
So we're definitely looking to kind of recognize those areas where we need to improve. So if there, if we go into an organization where the organizational culture has evolved in a certain way, uh, we have to uh, be proactive about addressing it. We got to find the ways uh, that this could be improved and it will definitely, a uh, part of it is uh, the employer kind of committing to making that change too. Um, it has to come from the inside, unfortunately. What happens a lot is employers will be uh, very gung-ho about improving representation. So having the people in the workplace that are different, look different, have different identities. And and what we definitely notice in DEI is that those lower levels of an organization tend to be more diverse. And then as you go up, this it, it's a little bit more homogenous. And what happens there is this assumption that if you bring in diversity, well, they will naturally rise to the top. But if you have a work environment that's not inclusive, where you expect some people to behave a certain way, like the ways in which professionalism is understood kind of aligns with the ways that certain identities tend to behave, well, then people might not be able to just naturally, magically rise to the top. Like there are some changes that need to be made, right? It's so true. In my leadership coaching work, I work with a lot of, um, have lots of clients and lots of different big organizations from corporates to startups to, you know, just a really wide variety of corporate type work. And I imagine the people that you would work with. And I literally had a call this morning with someone who is BIPOC and she was saying her culture and the way it, you know, she, cause she, she moved to where she is now, like in North America in 2016. So she is newer to corporate kind of North American culture, which is very different from the culture she's come from. And she's brilliant and ambitious and a high achiever. But culturally, she is very, what we would call and what she has heard from her management, too blunt, too forceful, too much. And yet, and so she is deeply frustrated because she's like, no men are being called too blunt. Too so there's like this, you know, gender thing comes in and she's got another marginalized identity and like, and so, you know, it's, it's very interesting to have these conversations because it's, it's, it's so problematic. And, you know, she's reporting to, from her level up is what she has said is basically all white, mostly men. And she's like, how, how do I navigate that? How do I, you know, so we're working in a different capacity. We're working one-on-one -on -one and developing there. But if you were to go into an organization like that, I imagine that's not a unique situation I just described. What, what kind of, like, what would you do? Is it trainings? Is it one-on-one -on -one work? Are you working with senior levels to start to shift them? So it's like trickles down, like, what kind of, what's a tip, maybe more like one or two kind of typical things that you're asked to do with DEI, even though I know there's probably not a typical. Oh, but no. yeah. Yes, definitely different situations will, will call for different things, but leadership buying generally goes a long way. Like if your leadership is not committed to DEI, the extent of the word that we can do is going to be pretty limited, unfortunately. Um, some things that I think are really crucial 
to to DEI work is um, really people turning inward and and having that capacity to look at themselves critically, which is not easy for a lot of people, especially if if, if the ways in which someone exists have been normalized and you've never had to examine them much in the ways that a marginalized person constantly has to adjust. Yeah. And you've been rewarded by them. Like it's those qualities have gotten you more privilege. You've more been power. rewarded for those qualities. And as a result, you're going to reward those qualities in, in other people yeah. as well. Exactly. So it's, it's very difficult to do change with like one group session. You're, we're talking about a lifetime of things that have been reinforced over and over. And if someone doesn't have the willingness in the first place, if we're walking in backwards to those trains, like, oh, then it, it, yeah, it's going to be difficult to affect some change. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's pretty tricky with DEI too is unfortunately a lot of issues come down to it's more complicated than it seems. You know what I mean? It's like, can I say this? I was like, well, it depends, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you got to ask, it depends on the person. And like a lot of it is there's actually a whole lot of nuance and there aren't that many clear answers. And a lot of people don't really like that. Like we want those clear cut answers, but part of the work is getting comfortable with being thrown into the ocean and just holding on to what you can. So I'm making it sound scarier than it is, but like you can't anchor yourself to every single thing the same way every time. It's so true. Well, and I'll share myself, like even when I started kind of my own anti-O, anti-oppression learning journey about like in a deep way about four years ago, that's exactly what I said to our anti-O educator who came in through the writing studio they work for. We do monthly trainings around different aspects of DEI and anti-oppression work. And I remember one of the first ones, I was like, no, hang on, hang on. I just, could you just give me a bullet point list? <laughs> and that was, and I cringe now knowing that I said that, but it was a very white person thing to say, quite frankly, which is like, could I, and that's what we're taught under wasp white supremacist type culture, which is, could I just have the rules please? And well, even our education system is like, here's the equation. Here's the, you know, I've been asked to do train. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've been asked to go into organizations and be like, okay, can you just make a list of like, if this happens, do this, if this happens, do this. And every time I'm like, I literally cannot list every potential event. You need to understand the principle so you can figure out <laughs> how you should behave. Right. And, and, and people don't like that. They want those little answers, just like, like a mama bird, you know, regurgitating into, into baby birds. Sorry. Uh, that's, that's the analogy that came to mind. Um, but unfortunately, no, you got to learn to fly on your own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also too, like what I have found doing this work as a participant and kind of just, you know, being in this space a little more deeply is there's, we have such a low tolerance for discomfort, you know, and, it is deeply uncomfortable to own our own privilege. Like I'm white, I'm educated, I'm middle-class. Like I grew up in a family where there was no food scarcity. There was no poverty. Now my parents grew up in poverty, but I did not. So I have so much unearned privilege just in 
that and sitting with that, trying to be, uh, to understand that where that might make me unable to recognize my own biases. I mean, that's a deeply uncomfortable place to be in and where I might unintentionally harm other people. I mean, I think this is why this work is so important and so complicated and it takes time and effort and energy. And it's so worth it for anyone listening. Please don't be like scared off by this. It is a hundred percent worth it. I feel like I'm still learning. Of course, I will be learning forever, but I feel like how I show up in the world now, having done a few years of this deeper work and learning is so different. And it's made, it's just had a huge impact on how I show up in organizations and in conversations. And so I think it's very worthwhile. I just wanted to put that plug in there because we're talking about how it is hard and why it's hard, but it's worth it. And one it. of the nice things, maybe a silver lining, is that if we can't know everything because it's impossible, then that means we don't have to know everything, right? So it's like, it's okay to make mistakes. That vulnerability actually goes a long way and the humility to recognize, hey, I don't know. Asking questions is okay. And if we make a misstep, it's an opportunity to learn and to add that to our toolkit. Like we're constantly progressing, right? But I think a lot of the discomfort with privilege too is because we live in a society where you have to earn and suffer for everything essentially and recognizing hey maybe i didn't earn and suffer for everything can be very disconcerting and then we start to think we we extrapolate right we have a tendency to to go to the extremes i mean like that that means i'm a bad person overall it's like no we have no control over the society that we're born into we have no control over the characteristics of our bodies the circumstances of our birth and we're not accountable for how those two interact, the, the privileges that are granted to us based on, on, on our characteristics and how society views them. So there, there's no guilt that needs to be had there as far as I'm concerned. What we got to do, though, is be responsible for what we do with those privileges. That, that's where it really counts. And if we're refusing to do the work because it's uncomfortable, then, well, that's where it gets a little bit uh, more problematic because we're not taking responsibility for what we do with those privileges. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that you just said that, Miriam. That's exactly, that's so powerful. Yeah. I always, I always just keep reminding myself. And again, when I do this work with others is like getting comfortable with discomfort and also being comfortable with making messes and knowing that we can always clean it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't go out of your way to make a mess, but like, we get you got to make a mess that's it will happen that's it yeah yeah i i will say i definitely i i don't say i won't say i'm fully humble i am not i'm very egotistical but i have learned a new level of and found a new level of humility within me especially when it comes to unintentionally harming others and taking ownership of that and learning and trying to do it better and it's yeah it's it's so fascinating how much capacity we do have to do this work to go to journey within in this way and when an organization can do it and I, again i'm very blessed to work for a, a, a creative writing studio called firefly where this is like built into the bones of the organization and 
we make mistakes together. We clean them up together. We talk about it. We actually, in our team meetings, we have this thing that we do. We're like, all right, who messed up? (laughs) And we just like own it. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, I did this thing. I think it wasn't great. What support? Like it, it really, it is good to be able to do it. It's, and that's super important. Like I've been in workplaces where you, if you admitted to a mistake, you would get punished, but like, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. This is normal. We don't know everything. <laughs> and and admitting to making a mistake doesn't make us any less smart or competent or whatever the case may be. It makes us more human. Absolutely. Yeah. And and admitting that we make mistakes is the first step towards correcting them, right? And, and learning from them and, and just mm-hmm. improving. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, and at the top, when I started by, you know, kind of introducing you and, and why I wanted to talk to you, I want to circle back to you because it is this idea of, again, I've done all these trainings and we, and I will say, I'll speak from my perspective. We have not had like sizeism training and it's, and I'm very much in communication with the studio that, that, I, that we do all these trainings with around this. And, but it's very interesting. Like we've like, anti-racism training, super common, gender training, super common, disability justice training, super common, like weight discrimination training, how to make spaces accessible for fat bodies. And not only fat bodies, because what also comes in is there's an ableism thing here too. So like bodies that might have knee injuries, but you know, bodies that use a chair, bodies that ambulate differently. Like there's just, there's not, there's not as much done around that piece. And so what I'm so curious to hear from you, Miriam, is like, and you had started to tell this story where I was like, hang on, let's do DEI first and then come back. So now we're coming back to it, which is you put your hand up. You said, hey, I would love to do a training on this. You started doing deep research. It is deeply overwhelming to read about hatred against a body and identity that you live in. So pick it up from there. So then what happened? <laughs> so so like I was saying, it made me much more aware of, like, this is something that people with other identities doing DEI work might experience constantly. It was really the first time for me to to really feel it, you know. And I didn't make that deadline. You know, my, my boss had wanted me to finish it up in a couple of months and I didn't make it. I, 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 I don't even think it, it was brought up. I think she kind of forgot about it. So I'm like, okay, okay, sure. All right. Trusted you. She trusted you. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. It might be that or it might be it wasn't actually that much on the radar. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, and then later on, uh, a few months later, there was an opportunity to include a section on fact stigma in a, a much bigger deck. And then I was like, okay, we're doing this. My research is mostly done. Let's make the deck. Let's get it done. And I, and I created kind of a prototype of a deck that was about an hour long, give or take. It, it was tough, but it got, it got made there. The, the deadline was a little bit stronger. So that might have motivated me to, 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 <laughs> to get it done. Uh, then I changed position. And, uh, when I changed roles, I never actually delivered that first because when I'm trying to get up, uh, and, and when I changed positions there, there, they were looking for topics for webinars. It was not so much going into specific workplaces. It was more kind of the overall talking to everybody, uh, types of webinar. And I'm like, Hey, I've got this prototype deck. 
it wouldn't be too much work to just adapt it for a webinar format. Let's try to get her done, right? Uh, so this process was like just over a year from me suggesting this deck to actually delivering it. And, and I think that's okay. Things take time. Like we live in a culture that's like time is money. Come on, come on, come on. And it's like, no, I, I had to take the time to do that emotional labor and produce something that I was proud to share that was going to get the message across. Um, and so we announced it, um, I want to say a few months before uh, the actual session, and there was a lot of interest in it. A lot of people wanted to to participate. Uh, people were commenting on LinkedIn and all that. And we got a good amount of registration. And uh, one thing that I got nervous about was that a lot of people from the healthcare field registered. I was like, oh my God, am I going to get the, is this going to turn into an argument, you know? Can you say a little more for people who may not understand why that every fat person listening understands, but for the straight sized people who may not understand why that would be nerve wracking, what's the worry there? Yes, sure thing. Um, so definitely just saying things like fatness is not that bad. Just, just a very kind of nuanced statement like, hey, maybe being fat is not the worst possible thing in the world, right? Again, I think we live in a culture that's very binary. You're saying, oh, being fat is not bad. So you're saying people should be fat. You know, right, just, right. This is the whole glorifying just, just, obesity just, thing that happens. All that stuff, yeah. exactly. Which is like, no, actually, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying fat people are people and maybe we shouldn't all be terrible to fat people. Well, and I imagine what they might also say is like, well, obesity, they would first of all use the O word, which is deeply stigmatizing. So they would probably say things like, well, I'm imagining, you know, well, obesity is a disease. Like, why is it part of DEI? Like I imagine a lot of skepticism. That's that's I, I I'm not gonna say I expected it. The fact that there was a lot of buzz around it, I assume was a positive thing. Uh but my mind as a fat person who has existed in this healthcare field, well, I learned that there were a lot of healthcare people, that's where I got a little bit worried. Are they gonna be like, but there are so many risks associated with obesity and yada 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 and all that it's just like huh. and I I but I was very empowered by the leadership team actually to be like, hey, this is a webinar. There's going to be hundreds of people in there. You don't have to answer every single question. If there are some questions that you don't want to answer, just don't. <laughs> we give we give an email at the end for people to follow up with questions. And it turned out, I don't think we got any of those types of questions. So we, I was, I was very happy with that. Uh, but if I can go back just a bit, like, Part of getting ready for that webinar was getting some feedback on the deck from my colleagues. But there were some other challenges there. DI specialists are people and people have biases and not everybody has done the same work that I've done around fatness. And I got not, not pushback. I don't want to say pushback, but like there, there were some arguments around words, you know, where, where some folks were inadvertently maybe trying to reintroduce some biases into what I was putting out there. Uh, so the, the webinar was in January coinciding playfully with new year's resolutions. And in the descriptor that we were putting out there. So very early on in the process, it was like a lot of people have as a resolution to lose weight. Instead, maybe we can learn about anti-fatics, yeah. <laughs> like kind of a, I was, it, it, the vocabulary was, Here's an alternative to that kind of thing. 
And someone on my team suggested, well, maybe we could say in addition to that. And I'm like, no, actually, no, I don't know. Because <laughs> they were like, well, we don't want to tell people to not lose weight. And I'm like, yeah, we do. I do. <laughs> maybe not in those words, but that's also not what I'm saying. So if they, they want to jump to that conclusion, that's their business. Um, but I don't want to say like it's a good resolution that you should take. No, I don't want to say that. And uh, as part of this, also, I released a blog, like a written uh, a post around uh, diet culture myths. And in one of them, again, like we, we would get picky around sentences, you know, where they wanted to reintroduce some little ideas that they had. And I had to fight back just a little bit in there. There was a sentence. Uh, there's no such thing as a universally bad food. Yes, 100 percent right. <laughs> but that drives but me But I yeah. think <laughs> some of my colleagues, again, maybe took it to the other extreme going like, you can eat any and all foods and everything's going to be fine, you know, which, um, yes, it's kind of true. But in their mind, it was an, kind of an extreme thing to say. So one of my colleagues let, let this long comic go like, no, actually, there are universally bad foods and, and, and fast food has a bad reputation for a reason. And, and there was kind of a back and forth going like, hey, what I'm saying is it's not a universally bad food. That means there are no such foods that have zero redeeming qualities. All foods have some nutrients of some, like one way or another. And if you eat for pleasure, that's a valid reason to, to eat something. There is some redeemable quality in every food. Otherwise, it's not food. You're talking about a piece of paper. Like, wait, wait, you know what I mean? And, and, and I had to dig, you know, it's like, no, actually, and, and we had to go back and forth quite a while until we agreed that I would add a little bit more to that. And I think the sentence that ended up being added was something like, even a hamburger has protein and carbs and things like that to kind of explain a little bit further, which is fair. That's fine. Um, but it, it like there was definitely a lot of back and forth where I had to do some of the unraveling for my colleagues, so to speak. Um, but they were open to listening. Yeah, that's it. Like I, I, I shared with my colleague the word healthism. Like, hey, you should probably look into that a little bit. And and he came up and he thanked me. He was like, you know what? I did look into it, and I'm glad you told me about that. And it was like, yes, thank you, fantastic. Like my colleagues are wonderful. They came from a place where this was a new topic for them too. And yes, there was definitely some some pushback and that's kind of to be expected, but they had the humility to know, hey, this makes sense. Maybe the thing that I've grown up knowing my entire life is not actually quite right. So, and that was, that that spoke a lot about them. Like, obviously they, they that's why they're in this field. <laughs> yeah. Well, Miriam, I'm so struck in this moment that by you doing that work and bringing this to your organization, like you really did some real internalized, like some internal within the org work as well that was unexpected, you know, but such a benefit. A lot of people from the organization attended the webinar too. And I got a lot of comments from my colleagues going like, thanks, I needed that. Like a lot of people who, who were on their own journey, you know? And speaking of which, when I, when I did a dry run, uh, it, it, it very quickly turned into like group therapy or, <laughs> you know, I was sharing stories and it, it, it was a great moment. It was a wonderful space to, 
to talk about these things. And I learned from that too. Um, I have colleagues who come from very diverse cultural backgrounds that might not view fatness and thinness in the same ways. So one of my colleagues uh, comes from a culture that has as a beauty standard fatness over thinness to the point where uh, in some extreme cases, you know, there, there's things like uh, force feeding and things like that, where which, you know, but, but what I find interesting about that conversation was uh, that whatever body is upheld as the ideal, some people are going to go to extremes. Yes. Well, heroin chic or, you know, as a beauty standard, you know, exactly here. Yeah. And, and I thought that was that was really interesting. Even when fatness is the beauty standard, people who are not fat are going to might go to extremes to to become fat and and my colleague is a straight sized person and she shared with me how much teasing she experienced it was like it was like the twilight zone it's like the other way around what's going on and when she moved to north america she experienced something completely different where people were complimenting her on her appearance because she actually fell within the beauty standard here and at, she was sharing with me that at first she th- she thought they were kind of like joking, you know, just you're, you're, you're you know, that's not serious. That's not right. But, but the more that she learned around here, uh, she, she started understanding. Um, so that led me to adding a disclaimer at the beginning of my session. That's like, Hey, actually this is what I'm presenting is deeply rooted in a Western white understanding of weight and other cultures might have completely different understandings. Like I, I didn't even think to acknowledge that. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. You know, the ways that I've experienced weight stigma is also probably not the way that everybody else has experienced it. So yeah, I was very thankful for, for that group therapy session because I learned a lot too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in this training session, what, what did it consist? Not, we don't need the full details. Like I'm not going to have you do it, but I'm just curious. Is it like the intro? Is it like, this is what weight stigma is. This is how it shows up. This is what we can do personally. Do you have like maybe three things that people listening can do to work on their own anti-fat bias? I totally asked you that out on the spot, putting you on the spot, Miriam. <laughs> so j- just to answer your your question about the content, it was fairly introductory. Like I started with vocabulary. Here are the words I'm going to use. Here are the words I'm not going to use and why. What's fat stigma? Uh, how, what is internalized a fat phobia? Uh, things around society, so diet culture, uh, medical fat phobia talked about a little bit. And then I talked about some movements a little bit more positive. What's, what's body diversity, body neutrality, body positivity? How do they differ? You know, things like that. Um, and then at the end, we turn to the workplace because our mandate is really around the workplace. And what do we do to improve, uh, fat inclusion, uh, in the workplace? Uh, so you asked me, what are some things that people can do to combat their own internalized fat phobia? Um, like with many other aspects of DEI and many other topics, practicing self-awareness of your thoughts and being aware of what you're about to say and questioning where it comes from and 
going back a little bit where did i where did i hear that and is it a valid source also is it useful and you know things like that really questioning ourselves and pausing before we speak people need to learn to pause before we speak <laughs> yes I'll, uh, yeah i'll just say that um <laughs> yes agree <laughs> and 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 really being aware of when we're saying or about to say something or saying something that might be harmful and having the 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 humility if we have said it to to backtrack if you got to you know i think in a lot of workplaces we still hear uh praise for weight loss like if your colleague comes in and it's like Ooh, you'll still heal people praising that and yet you don't know how this person has been losing weight if they're sick or something like that it might not be a positive or thing stress. at all they might have a life a real life stress exactly yeah. um and when you praise someone for something that ultimately they don't quite control like you might have this the another person doing the exact same things in terms of diet exercise but there are so many factors that we don't control in our in our weight where their body is not responding in the same way so you're really congratulating a person for their body responding to this in a certain way you know it's really not something that the person ultimately has that much control over everybody's going to hear it and you're reinforcing in the workplace that there's one correct way to be and if you're not too bad so sad um because i've had people in the past when i was working on this it, like early on in the process going like hey so does that mean i can't like congratulate someone for losing weight and i'm like kind of yeah you you should you you should uh compliment people on things that they can control <laughs> i agree i i i've started yeah, for me, it's so cut and dry now. And I think this is true with my friend group, certainly my colleague group. We, we, we don't comment and we shouldn't comment on people's appearances in general. Like it's the least interesting thing. And it drives me nuts. I remember Ellen used to always start Ellen, the talk show host. She's always the example I think of. It's like, she'd welcome people and Hey, God, you're looking good. It's like, could you not just only focus on appearance? It's so boring my personal rule if i'm going to comment on some something related to appearance is is it something the person can't control because someone has got a nice some funky nails like the nice colors that they chose if they, they i love a bold pair of glasses and i will oh i love those glasses they pick them out it's their sense of style that, that that's something i mean it depends on the person too but like that's something that i think is more appropriate to to compliment um and uh, to, to go back on some of the other things that we can do, uh, uh, being aware of what we're saying and what we're doing also includes the things that we tell ourselves. And sometimes we have to go out of our way and be very uh, conscious and be very intentional in countering some of those things. So if you find yourself thinking, oh, I shouldn't go to this interview, I shouldn't do this or that because of my weight, like get out of your own way and do it which is easier said than done i i do have to uh to acknowledge that but start with like hey they're taking a group picture maybe you don't have to hide in the back row or volunteer to take the picture like it's okay you are allowed to exist in this space you are a part of this space and 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 make a conscious effort to to take that space um it takes practice like anything else we're only going to get more comfortable uh countering 
fat phobia and an internalized fat stigma by by practicing it and it'll feel awkward and weird at first but hopefully it'll get easier right yeah absolutely yeah do you have tips for people when they are in the because here's another common thing that happens in workplaces is the diet culture informed conversation around lunchtime and foods and th- there's also this i, I know because my friend was telling me the one who works for the fed uh was saying there's this like food policing that starts to happen where it's like oh what are you bringing oh you must have done your workout this morning to eat that or whatever like it's just like all of this stuff around food which is I find deeply problematic as someone who has struggled my whole life with an eating disorder. So it's not only just fatness, but there's eating disorders and disordered eating that people, again, it's like invisible. You don't often know, but people who are deeply impacted by those types of comments. And so I'm, I, to me, that's, that's a part of DEI work too, the social part of a workplace and becoming aware that some of the things that we take for granted like this is just the way that people talk at lunchtime can actually be deeply harmful and we have to make those efforts to to stop that so a a good rule of thumb in the workplace is just say if someone brings in treats like there's someone's birthday there's a there's cake in the break room whatever the, the the case might be don't comment on whether someone is partaking or not, how much they're partaking in it. Fundamentally, it's kind of none of your business, but also you're, you're, if we comment on these things in one way or another, we're reinforcing a culture that is harmful. Just, just make that conscious effort to be like, oh, hey, this person's having a slice of cake. If, if you get the urge to be like, oh, you're having a slice of cake, like, don't <laughs> just 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 question that like be aware of the things that you're saying and that's a thing in di that i think a lot of people have trouble with because again the, the people who have certain privileged identities are not used to watching the things that they say and, and having to just monitor your thoughts and the things that come out of your mouth can feel oppressive if you're not used to it but it's kind of the bare minimum and people with marginalized identities do it all the time and and the the uh consequences of a mistake like if you let something slip out that you shouldn't have are much more dire if you're someone with a marginalized identity than if you're someone with a privileged identity like a, a marginalized person like it could lead to a toxic work environment it could lead to harassment discrimination it could lead to termination you know it could lead to violence even but if you're it is someone with privilege and you make a mistake more often than not it's like hey you should apologize <laughs> like maybe you should do a little bit of extra training it yeah it's it's about realizing that individually we all have work to do to live in a society. Like everybody has to make the effort. Uh, yeah. And so those those are such great examples, Miriam, from an individual perspective. Thank you. Now, what about at the organizational level? Like what are, are there kind of three key things around anti-fatness that anyone who has power in an organization who is listening, who you're like, could you please do these three things <laughs> for your people? What What are some of those things that, they can do 
Uh, so definitely there's a lot of work around kind of improving workplace cultures, but that also comes down to kind of the individual level. Some of the things that I was saying, organizational cultures are made up of people and everybody has to do the work. Uh, in terms of, say, policies or they say around benefits or things like that or uh, how spaces are organized, we have to be aware of the needs of the individuals that work for us and that might eventually work for us potentially that bodies evolve over time etc and i realized that uh there's no one size fits all solution uh and, and build our organization around that flexibility and around taking uh into account that people need different things so for example if your organization has a uniform offer a wide range of sizes and offer all the options available in all sizes. Don't say, hey, well, there's one 4X option that's good enough. And then meanwhile, everybody else has like five different colors. Like that's not cool. Yeah. And can I just add to that really quick? And so with that, what I hear there too, and that I just want to, again, just gosh, if we can make one fat person's life easier with this conversation, um, it's worth it which is that that means you as a manager or a leader of your organization, you need to do the freaking work to find a supplier that offers a full range of clothing, at least up to a 6X. If you're like sourcing uniforms for like the company baseball team, or just it's a place where there are uniforms like a vet clinic or a hospital, you have to source from a place and demand that your supplier, your manufacturer, makes truly inclusive clothing, not just to Excel. I've encountered this constantly and it drives me nuts. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's very ableist language. It really drives me bananas um, because I don't get to wear the branded shirt because X double XL is as high as they go in women's. And even sometimes the men, it just, the men's doesn't, it doesn't fit my breasts and my hips. And like, it just, it does not work. And a 2XL is what, like one or two sizes above the average person? Like, come on, really? Like you're communicating something when some options are not available. Whether or not you intend to communicate it, you're communicating That's it. That's the unconscious bias. That's what's being communicated. Yeah. Uh, and same things around, uh, actually just an anecdote came, came to mind if that's okay. My very, very first job I was an elf for a mall center with a little company that went around malls in the area. And, and there were, you know, there was Santa, the, 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 the main character, right? And there was a little crew of elves around that would do cross and stuff like that. And one morning I showed up and uh, we all had costumes, of course. And for some reason, that morning, there wasn't a costume that fit me. And like, a guy was much smaller at the time. And it felt really terrible. I'm like, I'm like 16. This is my first job. I want money to go to the movie with my friends. And, uh, and everybody else looks great. They all have their costume. And I was like, I kind of want to just go home. I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, I'm not welcome here, you know. And the solution that was proposed at the time was like, well, just keep your own clothes and just tell the kids you're, you're like uh, helping the elves that came from the North Pole. I'm like, no, that completely ruins the fun for the kids, right? And I did end up going home. Uh, I didn't get in trouble, which is good, but like I didn't really get 
commitment that that was going to be improved. It's just like, just hope that the large, the one larger uniform is in there the day that you're working, you know, it's, yeah, it was, it was not fun. No. And what's amazing is like, you remember that feeling of not belonging how many years later? Like it, it, these, these wounds go they deep. They will stay with you a hundred percent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's very true. Like we don't think about that when we're interacting with people from day to day, but we can leave a lasting impact. Um, in addition to uniforms, like benefits are, are definitely something we've got to look into. And that includes both offering certain things and maybe not emphasizing other things, if that makes sense. Where uh, a lot of places will have, say, free gym memberships. Like, yeah, that's nice, but like, don't expect people to partake and recognize that that might not be useful for everybody and offer alternatives for for wellness um, and, and include uh, a wide variety as wide as possible of, of professionals and specialists uh, to have access to because people need different things. And that's true for fat folks and not fat folks. So, yeah. That's great. Also, can we do away with like weight loss competitions and those types of wellness programs? Totally. Just don't do it. Everyone listening, if you're in control of that, do not do it. If you're not in control of it, complain about it, please, on behalf of your fat friends. Like just... That's, def- that's one of the things that I mentioned in the session too. And I had asked my boss like, hey, can I give as an example, you know that episode of The Office where they have the weight loss challenge and it goes not well? Like, hey, maybe I could use that as an example. But I also was trying not to make it too light because this is serious. Like people are affected by this every day. Uh, no, wellness challenges are just a no. Just just don't. Just don't. <laughs> Again, just just contain yourself. You you had the thought, let it go. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a story someone wrote to me. This you'll appreciate this. Well, you won't appreciate it, you'll be horrified by it. Um, but I want to share because it it's such a powerful example of where people do not understand this and really harm others. So this one big cruise company, I won't say more, um, a big cruise organization that if I said the name, you would recognize it. Their head office, I think, has like two, three hundred people. And their head of HR, they were doing this like wellness challenge. Their head, head of HR, head of HR people who should know better put out to the whole company this attached a quote unquote study, which has actually been fully debunked by maintenance phase, by the way. And the headline was if you eat with other, if you eat around fat people, you will get fatter. Sent this to the whole fucking company. And the person who messaged me is fat and said, they were like, they were like, Sophia, I never left my cubicle again. I never went in to even like get water from the water cooler, or the tap. I didn't get coffee. I never ate in front of anyone again. But like that, that HR manager, that rings to me as someone who has never had to watch what they say. And, and, and like, maybe I just need to double check this and think about it before I hit send. Right. I just, I can't understand how someone who, where 60% of the population is plus size, at least that's the truth for North America. And to put something out like, Hey, if you eat around your colleague who is plus size slash fat, don't do that. Cause you're going to get fatter. Like the fear in, and in that, 
email that went company wide. Also, getting fat is bad. Therefore, your fat colleagues are bad. That's right. Don't do it. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So don't do that, people. Don't do things like that. (laughs) See, there's one of the easy things you can do. It's just not do it. It's a no. (laughs) (laughs) Here, I love it, Miriam. Simplifying what to do and not do in the workplace. Um, Those are great, great tips. Any other one that feels important around organizational level for anti-fat work? Listen to your employees, I think, is another one that maybe we should (laughs) say more about that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I think what happens, and I've experienced this too around a variety of issues, is when someone brings up a concern about something, it's like people will take it personal or even say, well, are you saying the company is bad? Are you saying the company doesn't care? And it's kind of like, no, I'm, I'm saying I'm being affected by this and there's opportunities to improve this. And I wish you would. And the fact that you're getting mad at me now is communicating to me that you really don't want to. Okay. So, <laughs> so l- listen to people, take it seriously, believe people. Yeah. Don't question. If I say, Hey, this, there's no chairs in this space that actually don't give me bruises on my thighs. Don't. Don't question me. Just say, okay, great. I will get a chair. That that's that's literally it. That's literally it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't find the ways in which the person should like bend bend over backwards. Like Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Don't yeah. It don't make it about them changing their bodies. Like you create an inclusive space. That's your responsibility as a business owner as an organizational I'm a person, leader. This is a chair. You should think I'm more important than the chair and just you will not hurt the chair's feeling if you replace it with a different chair. I oh my god, I need you. a t-shirt that says I am more important than the chair. <laughs> oh, <laughs> those are really helpful, Miriam. I love this. So can I ask you, I don't know if it's too early or not in in the offerings of these types of like this webinar and this, you know, bringing this anti-fat work into the DEI work that you're doing into your kind of off- offering, your roster of offerings. Are, are you seeing some impacts any any like what's how is it too early to see the impact of this work that you're doing we got a lot of good feedback i think people appreciated the session and at the very least i think it went a long way to validate that it this is a topic that does need to be addressed if some if a person is experiencing stigma around their their weight that is a that is a thing that is valid and we do need to work on it. Like I said, it was a very introductory level. So hopefully it brought a lot of ideas and people and, and things to look into and to continue that education. And uh, we got a number of questions uh, after uh, the, the person who takes care of, of the questions was telling me, yeah, I got a lot of questions. What's happening? Um, and most of them she was able to, to answer, but a, a few came to me with things that were kind of outside of my expertise. Unfortunately, there was someone who works in the hair care field who was telling me, well, how do I tell my colleagues that gathering BMI data is not actually representative of health and what else, what other edu- uh, like indicators should I push for? I was like, I'm not an epidemiologist. Like I, I am not a hundred percent sure. Um, and, and so I had to like 
point to other sources that can give the, the direct answer, but like there were questions that were coming out. Hey, how does this apply to my work? That's a thoughtful question. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yay. Yeah. And it made me think quite a bit too. So that that's good. Like I get to think about other things too. Uh, but I think opening those conversations is fantastic. Yes, let's talk about it. We might not have all the answers right away, but please let's talk about it. Um, and again, a lot of my colleagues were, were learned a lot themselves and a lot came to me saying like, hey, thanks for putting that out there. And, I, and I'm hoping that we keep having this conversation, right? Um, I know for me, one of the next steps, uh, the, the webinar was... Uh, I delivered it in English and there was a French interpreter in the back. I was not happy really with the recording when I heard it. I had started with like a terminology disclaimer. And unfortunately, some words with negative connotations were brought back in by the interpreter, which I was not. I imagine that's hard because the because it's a like translation is through an interpretation filter and and they, they're a person with their own biases and they might not have that ex- exactly. They might not have the expertise. So I'm hoping to do another introductory one, French first, that hopefully corrects that a little bit. Um, and and then keep going with more specific topics, especially as we get some of those questions coming in, we can find more specific areas to address, maybe in different fields or how different intersecting identities might be impacting uh, a, a lot of things like that, that hopefully we can continue working on this topic and making it integral to, to DEI work. Oh, so good. I am so, so happy. You're, I can't even tell you, Miriam, like it's just, it's it just, it's going to have huge impact and it's the tip of the iceberg, I think, in terms of, uh, getting into more and more DEI organizations who will hopefully take lead from the work that you're doing and bring it into their roster of offerings. It's very interesting because I will be, I haven't yet recorded with, but I just had a conversation with an employment lawyer around, because there's intersections here around employment law and what, I think, I think she used the word, like what classes are protected. So like, like protecting people's jobs and what accommodations are required legally. And fatness is not, it's not a protected ground under human rights. Yeah. I I had a a short section on that, but, but you often, there are cases that come out around fatness, but kind of through the detour of, of disability. Yeah. 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 Or it might be like they were bullied. So bullying is like protected. So you could go in that way. But again, this whole, like, how great would if it was just protected, like no discrimination based on weight done and done. So I know there's some movement alongside. And so I'm hoping that these two, like kind of in the DEI world and the legal world, we can just start making these steps forward so that fat people are protected legally and protected just, they get to be human at work and they get to be accommodated and not feel ostracized. We spend so much of our time at work. Like that's one of the reasons why I, I find DEI is so important and I really enjoy doing this work is we don't need to be miserable for 40 hours a week for like 50 years of our lives. Like maybe we can, we can make it tolerable at the very least for as many people as possible. Please. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
Um, so I want to come to our final question, which is around joy, as always. And I've actually, you know, what's funny, I've gotten some feedback recently that for a lot of people, this is their favorite part of the podcast is like hearing what brings other people joy. So what brings you joy, Miriam? How do you turn towards joy, especially given the work that you do day in, day out, which is about really hard stuff? So how do you connect to joy? In, in this work, we definitely have to to practice self-care and disconnect when we need to and and take care of ourselves. I really enjoy spending time with my cats. I love, and this is going to sound super silly, but like with my size, I, like my lap can accommodate even more cats, right? <laughs> that sounds very silly, sorry. But it's true. Hey, like, come on over. Um <laughs> I love giving back through my volunteering, uh, too. I love spending time with my husband. He's always been a huge, huge supporter. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. My, my, over the course of the last 15 years, my, my body has evolved a lot and he has never wavered. You know, I'm very, very lucky. Oh, yay, husband. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, I, I enjoy getting rest when I need it. I think that's really important. Sometimes I like to disconnect my brain and maybe not think about all the horrible things for a little bit and just uh, pet my cats and watch some funny cat videos and, you know, and knit a little sweater for my cats and <laughs> just, just to have, have a, a simple, small moment of, of calm and joy. Amazing. Uh, well, you've brought us a lot of joy today. Thank you. Thank you for sharing so generously of your expertise and giving us really great tips that people I hope will take and bring back to their own workplace, workplaces back to themselves. Um, this has been super, super informative. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you also for having me. Um, I really enjoyed the work that you're doing. Also, I learned so much uh, and I take it into my work. Add that to my toolkit. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. My conversation with Miriam Chiasson matters so much. How we create inclusive spaces for marginalized bodies, and of course, especially fat bodies, is basic human rights work, or it should be. And yet the challenges faced in shifting mindsets and changing organizational cultures is slow work, slow and arduous, uh, which had me thinking about this poem by Kay Ryan that is called A Certain Kind of Eden. It seems like you could, but you can't go back and pull the roots and runners and replant. It's all too deep for that. You've overprized intention, have mistaken any bent you're given for control. You thought you chose the bean and chose the soil. You even thought you abandoned one or two gardens. But those things keep growing where we put them if we put them at all. A certain kind of Eden holds us thrall.
Even the one vine that tendrils out alone in time turns on its own impulse, twisting back down its upward course, a strong and then a stronger rope, the greenest, saddest, strongest kind of hope. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.